The year is 1990, and a killer is on the loose in Gainesville, Florida. A man who would murder five, all students. Without smartphones, the only information came through newspapers, TV, and radio. Over the span of four days, panic gripped the city and University of Florida. This is Four Days, Five Murders, and I'm Camille Respis. The man responsible for the nightmare is often remembered. And the victims' names? Krista Lee Hoyt, Sonia Jane Larson, Tracy Inez Paulus, Christina Patricia Powell, and Manuel Ricardo Taboada. Are painted on a memorial. Many pass by daily without knowing why it's there. Throughout this podcast, we will rarely mention the name Danny Rowling. But no matter what we do, his presence hangs like a specter over this project. In the coming episodes, we explore the trauma a moment in time can have on people and places, and how long a tragedy like this stays in a place like Gainesville. Three days of panic, three gruesome crime scenes, five innocent victims, and no suspects. That is what law enforcement had to work with in August of 1990 in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, At that time, a full-fledged panic had, had broken out within the community. This was the week that school was to begin to start. My recollection is I think the first football game was that coming Saturday. I believe that was Spurrier's return to Florida. That's Rod Smith, the district attorney at the time. And before you knew it, football took a second seat. In fact, everything began to pale in comparison to the ongoing investigation. Gainesville, once a college town, had quickly become the subject of national media attention. According to Smith, the momentum of the investigation was full speed ahead. There was never a an uh, effort by anybody to to shirk. It was more, uh, here, let me help you. Hey, I'll do that for you. Everybody was volunteering. People worked extra hours. People worked extra shifts. There was never any sense of us and them. It was only, we have a job, we have a mission. The search for the killer involved over 200 investigators, a $6.3 million budget, and mountains of evidence. Some people think you <laughs> you kind of figure out who the defendant is, and then you find the evidence. The better way to do it is follow the evidence to find out who the defendant is. The first one will get you in trouble. You will get in trouble. The second one will get you justice. But investigators, in their hurry to bring someone to justice, they ensnared the wrong man. 18-year-old Ed Humphrey was an incoming freshman at the University of Florida. He had been in a car accident two years prior to the murders and was left with both physical and psychological scars. This accident caused a significant shift in Humphrey's personality. He became erratic and temperamental. He had been on meds. He had had some instability. I'm not not about to make a diagnosis, but there was some bipolarity in his behaviors. Humphrey lived with his 79-year-old grandmother in Indian Atlantic, Florida. His behavior came to a crescendo on August 30th, 1990, when he beat his grandmother in their home. He was arrested and held in the Brevard County Jail. Following is a news excerpt from the assault trial. She said she picked her up, and he started to choke her with both hands around her neck, 
She said she could remember him possibly hitting him one time. And that's the story prosecutors wanted the jury to believe. While in custody, Humphrey confessed to the Gainesville murders. But investigators had no evidence that his confession was grounded in reality. He clearly didn't. He, his behavior was ostent, it was outlandish. He, he was loud. He was obnoxious. He talked about fighting in Vietnam. We had left Vietnam when he was like four years old. Spencer Mann, who worked for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office at the time, said Humphrey's behavior drew media attention toward him. Uh, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, doing the wrong things. Because of his behavior at the time, uh, it, it drew attention to him. Humphrey sat in jail with a million-dollar bond for over a year for the assault on his grandmother and was released on September 18th of 1991 but he was still a suspect in the Gainesville murders. Two months later, over a year after the murders took place, a grand jury decided not to indict him for these other crimes. Jim Nylon, a prosecuting attorney on the case, recounts bringing Humphrey's confession before the grand jury. And then for Ed Humphrey, I presented that whole confession to the grand jury because they're the conscience of the community and said to them, do you believe if you do you believe this is a confession? And I had them listen to all the tapes, and it was excruciating listening to over a day's worth of uh, ramblings, basically. And so Ed Humphrey rightfully was not indicted for these murders. Smith said Humphrey's wild behavior didn't match the meticulous nature of the crimes. The guy that committed these crimes was very much in control. I mean, he he literally cleaned. Uh, he he was careful in everything. I don't want to go into great detail, but he was he, the guy that committed these crimes was a control freak. Ed Humphreys was not a control freak. He was out of control. So for me to look at these crime scenes and then to see his behavior, this man didn't do these crimes. Despite eventually being cleared by a grand jury. Ed Humphrey still looked the part of the person who could commit these crimes, both to law enforcement and the press. He really was convicted of a crime he should never have been convicted of because they were trying to hold him to get enough evidence to, to try to bring him into this case. And they led that court into believing that they were on the verge of having enough evidence to make him the Gainesville student murderer. He wasn't. And they didn't. In retrospect, Smith shares that he wishes he had taken action sooner. I would have put more effort into exonerating Ed Humphrey earlier, but it, it was a tricky, it was a slippery slope for the prosecutor. He says he didn't want to be the first to clear Humphrey's name when so many questions lingered in the public consciousness. For an entire year, any time the murders were mentioned, Humphrey's name followed. In the Miami Herald on September 2, 1990, teen deemed valuable figure has been described by police as one of the best suspects in the Gainesville murders last week. But Humphrey remains one of a pool of more than 10 possible suspects, police said Saturday. And Humphrey has in no way become their prime suspect. In the Associated Press on November 15, 1990, Suspect in Gainesville slaying sentenced in beating of grandmother. Gainesville murder suspect Edward Lewis Humphrey was sentenced today to the maximum 22 months for beating his grandmother after his lawyer said no private psychiatric hospital could be found for him. And in the United Press International on October 11, 1990, 
Humphrey convicted of beating grandmother, Humphrey, 19, has been named a suspect in the unsolved slayings of five students whose bodies were found near the University of Florida August 26th, 27th, and 28th. All had been stabbed to death, and some had been mutilated. Florida Governor Lawton Childs and his cabinet finally unanimously decided to restore Humphrey's civil rights. Lori Leahy, Tracy Paulus's sister, remembers seeing Humphrey on TV and knowing somehow that he was not the right man. I knew immediately it wasn't him. Just knew it. Like, no, that's not him, that poor guy. They went through all that. Everybody was ready to, all, all the guys that we grew up in wanted to run down there because they were looking for the wet, their weapon. They wanted to like get, break open his trunk and get it out or something like that. They were all planning to hop in their trucks and go. I'm like, no, it's not him. The constant attention changed his life. Humphrey will always be associated with these crimes despite his innocence. I hope things have gone for his, you know, well for his life since then, uh, because at the time uh, he did go through hell. A WUFT reporter from our team tried to speak to Humphrey in his home at the beginning of this year, but he politely declined to go on record about his experience. Considering the way he's been portrayed publicly so many times, it makes sense that Humphrey was slow to trust any reporter. He went ahead and he has rectified his life and lived a very uh, successful life. In fact. I supported uh, the efforts uh, for him, the governor, to grant him a pardon um, because I felt like he had really been railroaded in kind of the panic that, it, that was around, which is there's a, a completely separate le lesson there about you got to be careful about the panic that surrounds a high profile crime because people are just rushing. They want to know they got the guy because they feel better if they got the guy. And we all understand that. But you want to make sure the guy you got is the right guy. And he was not. In the few minutes they spoke at the door, Humphrey said that he's happy it's over. He has a family and a job now, but his association with the case will haunt him for the rest of his life. A simple Google search will show hundreds of articles that connect him to the murders. Humphrey wasn't the only one affected by the constant media attention. With so much information, rumors quickly began to spread through the community back in 1990. As someone at the forefront of media inquiries, Spencer Mann says that all the hearsay made his job very difficult. The misinformation that was coming out at the time uh, uh, was so intense that the University of Florida, as part of the task force, set up an information hotline where people could call if they had, had a concern about something they heard and have it dismissed as simply misinformation or a rumor that's not substantiated. Back when Humphrey was still sitting in jail in September of 1990, another man just 40 miles away was arrested for robbing a grocery store in Ocala. Danny Rawling was 36 years old when he went on a crime spree involving two burglaries and one grocery store robbery in Tampa. Waylon Clifton was the chief of the Gainesville Police Department in 1990. He died earlier this year. But in an archival interview from 2000, he said that Rawling didn't stand out because of the inconsistencies in his criminal history. He was a very accomplished burglar. In fact, he was a career criminal. You generally don't see uh, career criminals uh, that's involved in property crimes become uh, serial murders. That's kind of unusual. So that, that never matched. That kind of surprised us all. But the, in this case... And I guess in all cases, you have some of those kinds of things that would throw you off. 
Because of this inconsistency, investigators had no reason to connect him to the serial murders in Gainesville until his FBI profile matched three murders in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. After investigators connected Rawlings' profile to the case, they were able to use DNA evidence to link him directly to the scene. DNA was a relatively new concept in policing at the time. But I had not been on a case at that time that really had DNA that played any kind of major part in it. And here was a case in which, through all of these uh, suspects we had at the time, zeroed in on the one person that uh, we needed to, to apply our resources. While Rawling was held in Florida State Prison, he began confiding in his cellmate, Bobby Lewis. Lewis gained notoriety for being the first person to escape Florida death row. After building a rapport, Rawling decided he wanted to help Lewis strike a deal or receive some benefit from the state. To do this, he ended up confessing to the Gainesville murders. Rawling also instructed Lewis to write out the confession in his own handwriting and deliver it to the investigators. However, the prosecution team didn't trust Lewis or his intentions because of his infamous reputation. So we figured Bobby was just blowing smoke. But we also talked with the videographer, who was the first person at the crime scene. The videographer went back and he showed us where he had gone in and the evidence that of, of this particular event occurring was plainly there. It's the first time any of us had noticed it, which meant that the only way that Bobby Lewis had this information had to be Danny Rowling telling him that, because it was only Danny Rowling who knew it. We didn't even know it. And then, unexpectedly, Rowling asked to meet with the prosecution team himself, even though he'd ultimately have to waive his own rights by doing so. Smith, the lead prosecutor, did not meet with Rowling as it would be unethical, but he sent over Hewitt, Nylon, and Ed Dix to conduct an interrogation. As I recall, they were to instruct Danny in very strong terms. You have a lawyer. He's been appointed to you. You have rights under the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment. You should exercise those rights. You, do, you should not talk to us. Now, I couldn't go out there and I couldn't send a lawyer out there, but I can send, but a police officer can go out there. A sheriff's officer can go out there. We could not because we had constraints under our ethics. They came up with a plan to get Rawlings' confession on tape without making Lewis a witness. They brought a video camera into the room with Rawling and Lewis and started asking questions. My position was Danny loves attention. He was a narcissist. Of, so... We took the video and Danny loved it and he played to it. And Bobby was doing the talking for a while and Danny was whispering in his ear, blah, blah, blah. And LeGrand Hewitt kind of at one point just kind of casually turns over and says, Danny, has he got that right? Or Danny, is that right? Is that how it happened? And Danny says, yeah. And after that, every time they would bring up something, LeGrand would kind of let a little pass and then he'd get Danny to confirm. So it was clear that Bobby was the spokesperson but it was almost like a puppet. The same grand jury that cleared Humphrey's name on November 16, 1991, also indicted Rawling. Rawling's defense attorney, John Kearns, remembers the chaos of that day. Uh, my recollection was I was there when the grand jury came back with the indictment. And the press looked like a frenzied shark attack on drowning sailors. 
The prosecution had been working for months and ready to prove Rawlings' guilt in court. Sarah Sidner, a freshman student reporter at UF, covered the trial that day. Sidner is now a CNN correspondent, but she says the horrific crime scene photos she saw linger in her mind to this day. Um, I remember going into court and we were all prepared to see this person who was accused of basically terrifying a community by killing five innocent people. And I remember looking over and thinking, that's him? That, That guy? Is that the guy? And of course, you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, And so we were all prepared for a long, drawn-out trial. That long, drawn-out trial that Sidner predicted wouldn't come to pass because Rawling did something that shocked the courtroom. He pled guilty. What a day for Danny Rawling. He sat in an Ocala courtroom. The man long mentioned as the key suspect in the Gainesville murders officially became just that. When he confessed, you could hear a gasp and just the emotion running through that courtroom was, I mean, there were police officers and chiefs and sheriffs and what's going on? What did he say? What what did he just say? What They were like, they couldn't believe what they'd heard. And then the families, of course, they just, they were all, they were stunned. And and, and in their own minds, they still weren't even sure. What, What does this mean? He just said he did it. Why are we here? Nylon recalls no longer having to prove Rawlings' guilt. With all of the media attention on the trial, the next challenge would be finding an impartial jury. Following day, selecting a jury for phase two only. Well, of course, that made it even more difficult because the headlines that day, rolling pleads guilty, was all over the country. Now I'm bringing a jury and saying, have you heard anything about this case? Well, we didn't have anybody said no. No one. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people, everybody said, yeah, I heard about it. When's the last time you heard something? This morning? When's the last time you heard something? A few minutes ago? Uh, how much have you heard? A lot. So it was really getting hard to, to find jurors that I, I was worried we'd ever get a jury, but we did. Rawlings defense attorney Barbara Blout Powell and John Kearns knew their job wasn't to prove his innocence. He had already pled guilty. Their job was to get him the lowest possible sentence. Here's the judge on the case, Stan R. Morris, announcing the two punishments Rawlings could face. The punishment for this crime is either death or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Kearns recalls meeting with one of the victim's mothers during the trial. And arrangements were made for me through the bailiff to meet with the mother in one of the judge's chambers that was adjacent to the courtroom where we were having the hearing. So it was in an office, so it was out of public view. And there was just two of us in the room. And... Uh, She wanted to say that she appreciated the courtesy we had extended to the family. She understood and appreciated uh, the fact of how we handled it. And then she came up, put her arms around me, and we both cried. The defense called Rawlings' mother Claudia as a witness to his character. Claudia was diagnosed with liver cancer and couldn't physically be present in court. So Powell and Kearns went to Shreveport to video her deposition. She expressed herself with sorrow for everybody involved in the case, uh, for her son. I, I think she felt 
certain amount of blame, not feeling that she was able to protect Danny maybe as much as she would have liked or, you know, how you know, it, it's your child. So you assume certain responsibilities for what happens to your child, whether or not that's true or not. Okay. But certainly she felt deep remorse and sorrow. After the sentencing, she, I think, lived for maybe a year, year and a half after that, before she died of the illness. Despite the defense's best efforts to humanize Rowling, investigators didn't know how genuine his remorse truly was. On one hand, Smith didn't think Rowling was capable of feeling sorry. But again, I was blinded by, I knew what he was saying behind the scenes. So if he had said, I'm so sorry and broken into tears, I'd have never believed him because I knew how he bragged about how, what he did to the girls, how long he took, the, the things he did, uh, describing in detail things, bragging about it. I knew that he had done those things. I would have never believed him. So when, when you asked me about was Danny remorseful, I, I'm the worst judge because I know that in his heart there was no remorse. But Nylon didn't want to make a judgment call. But of course, none of us knew what was in his heart. Only God knows what's in your heart. So whether they, my question was, was it genuine remorse? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. The prosecution believed there was no other sentence than the death penalty that would bring justice to the families of the victims and the community that Rawling had terrorized. So it, it was a, a death penalty case, and um, my view was if we're going to have a death penalty case in the state of Florida, it's supposed to be even at that time, reserved for the most aggravated and least mitigated case. And this was that. I mean, if we weren't going to seek the death penalty on this kind of case, then really we weren't going to have a death penalty. At the end of the trial, it wasn't up to Smith or Nylon, but rather the decisions from the 12 people of the jury. They had to decide to move forward with either a life in prison or the death penalty. The jury unanimously chose the latter on Thursday, March 24, 1994, almost four years after the murders took place. Danny Rowling stands there, sits there as the person who killed in murder in the first degree Sonia, Christine, Krista, Manuel, and Tracy. That's Rod Smith, lead prosecutor on the case, speaking directly to the jury. Smith felt that he had done his job when the jury announced their sentence. I wanted to be there when they pronounced the death penalty for Danny Rowling. I wanted to, to, to I, I wouldn't have accepted anything else in any other way, and everything else in my life I would have considered to have been unfulfilled if that had not happened. And my staff was the same way. They were wonderful, committed, single-minded. Rowling was executed by lethal injection on October 25, 2006, at the Florida State Prison. The witness room was crowded with 47 people. Hewitt helped make accommodations for the families of the victims that wanted to attend. The ones that um, wanted to go to the execution of Rowling, um, I went with them. I helped escort them up there. I made provisions. Um, with the help of um, Laura Knudsen and Sheriff Darnell. Um, we coordinated that event and, and got them up there safely and got them back so that the ones that wanted 
Some of them actually wanted to witness it. Some of them just wanted to be on the property when it happened. And so uh, we made arrangements to do whatever they needed done to help them. His search for justice led him closer to the families and the victims than he would have ever imagined. I never met any, obviously, the victims, but I got to know them. I got to know them very intimately through investigation and through having such a close contact with their families. And so I felt like I knew each and every one of these victims. You know, they're just starting their lives. They're in college, they're getting educated. They're gonna be something. And they're gonna, you know, reach the stars and they never got that chance. And you're talking about five talented people. And that's so sad to me that they never got that chance. And I feel bad about that for them. And I can never make that sadness go away for them or for their families. It just, it just doesn't go away. To lose a child like this is like unfathomable. I mean, I, I can't imagine if one of my kids was taken away like this. And Hewitt is reminded each day of the lives that these five victims never got to live. Yeah, I, I've met a lot of the family behind people. You know, um, I have a, a room in my home where I have some plaques from my career. And I still have all five of their pictures uh, hanging up in my room. So it's something you don't forget. According to Mann, the Gainesville community hasn't forgotten either. I was in a restaurant not too long ago in Gainesville where I had somebody walk up to me that was a longtime Gainesville resident, never met them before. Person said to me, you're Spencer Mann, aren't you? I said, yeah. And sometimes that's a good thing or bad thing because I might have arrested somebody or done something uh, that's not positive in their life or their family's life. So kind of cautious when people say that. But this person said, you're Spencer Mann, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And said, uh, I remember you during the Gainesville student murders. You did a good job. Thank you for what you did. And that's 30 years later. And so it's still part of the fabric of the Gainesville community. The locals remember it. The families. The investigators and the Gainesville community as a whole had to learn how to cope with the grief. You know, I feel uh, good about what we're able to accomplish, what happened, the result, but the sadness never goes away. The sadness for those students individually as people and the sadness for their families, 30 years later, it's still there. And you know, you feel helpless that you can't bring more comfort to them other than, hey, we're going to do our best to bring your, the killer of your children to justice. Rowling got the death sentence, but the families have to live with the consequences of his actions forever. Life goes on, but the loss of a child is unlike anything else that ever happens to someone. And to lose your child this way is, their life has been, they're wonderful people, but they would tell you to their dying day, to their last breath, and some have now passed, 
their last breath, I'll tell you, they never got rid of the pain that he caused them. They got a life sentence. You've been listening to Four Days, Five Murders, a production of the Innovation News Center at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. I'm your host, Camille Respis. This episode was reported by Quan McQuill, Sophia Mingoti, Kristen Moorhead, edited by Sophia Mingoti and Kristen Moorhead. Thanks to our team, Annalise Linder, Malia Leiden, Quan McQuill, Gabriella Mercurio, Sophia Mingoti, Anthony Montalto, Kristen Moorhead, Audrey Mostek, Chris O'Brien, and Madison Soriano. Our producers are Josh Williams and Katie Heisen. Executive producers are Moni Basu and Ryan Vasquez. And thank you to the friends and families of the victims who shared their stories with us.